few weeks ago, the Gallup organization released some research that I found to be shocking. Not necessarily surprising, mind you, because the the trends have been clear for a while, but shocking nonetheless for this uh, middle-aged man who has spent the entire his entire life in the church, half a century now. You may have seen the headlines. For the first time since they started asking the question, Gallup reported that the percentage of Americans who consider themselves to be members of a church, synagogue, or mosque dropped below 50%. When they first asked this question in 1937, 73% of Americans belonged to a local congregation of some kind, and that number actually remained pretty steady for 60 years. By the late 90s, it was still 70%. But since the turn of the 21st century, that number has been dropping precipitously. Today, only 47% of Americans consider themselves to be members of a church, synagogue, or mosque, which I find shocking. And this is not just about membership per se. By every measure, attendance, giving, self-identification, America's connection to organized religion has been sharply waning for 20 years now. Today, Americans who consider their religion to be, quote-unquote, very important to them has fallen to an all-time low of 48%, which means that those of us who take our faith seriously are now officially in the minority in this country. Now, there are some, some caveats to this, of course. First, the statistics vary some by region. I'm assuming, for example, that the number of people here in Plano who consider themselves to be members of a church, synagogue, or mosque is somewhere well north of 47%. Probably not surprisingly, I personally do not know anyone in my social circle who is not a member of a local congregation, or at least not anyone who admits it. Also, these numbers vary by age demographic. That probably won't surprise you. For those born before 1946, the number jumps to 66%. It declines steadily from there. For baby boomers, it's 58%. For my own Gen X, it's 50%. For millennials, it drops to 36%. Time will tell how many of the 30 youth that we confirmed last weekend will remain connected in the years to come. I think it's important for me to say here that That as a pastor, I I don't see this as a doom and gloom situation here at Christ United. uh, We're part of an incredibly strong community of faith that makes a real difference in transforming both our own lives and the lives of our community. That's part of our our mission statement. We have an incredible foundation to build on here. We have thousands of members who are committed to this place. We have dedicated staff and lay leaders who are dreaming about what comes next for our congregation. Plus, uh, from a purely selfish, some might say competitive perspective, less people committed to other churches means more people for us to reach. But I do think that we're at a watershed moment in the history of our country. Long gone are the days when the church could simply assume that children and grandchildren would be part of the same denomination, let alone congregation, in which their parents and grandparents raised them. It's a beautiful thing when it does happen, to be sure. We have several families in this uh, congregation at Christ United who who, uh, fit that description. 
But the data tell us that when it comes to church, more than half of our neighbors have not yet found what they're looking for. And in fact, many don't even realize yet that they're looking for it. Which makes it imperative that we're very clear just what it is that we're offering. And so with that in mind, we're beginning a new sermon series today for the Easter season called Faith Matters, with a question mark, Faith Matters. (laughs) We'll be spending five weeks seeking to answer the question of why Christianity is important. What is the Christian message? Why is it relevant? Why do people need it? What do we have to offer to the 53% of Americans who do not yet have a church home? For those of us who have been in the church our whole lives, you know, we intuitively know the answers to these questions. The importance of our faith is just part of who we are. It's, It's deep in our hearts and souls and minds, and we probably rarely think of it this way. But if we're to reach all of our neighbors who have not yet come to realize just how much a church home can mean, it's good to be clear about the core of the Christian message. And to guide us throughout this series, we're going to be reading from the story of the earliest church. You may know that the book of Acts is actually the second book to have been written by the author of the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel is the story of Jesus. The Acts of the Apostles is Luke's story about how the disciples of Jesus launched the movement that bears his name in those early years after the resurrection. Every year during the Easter season, there are uh, lots of readings that are recommended from the book of Acts. And the one we're going to start with today is actually one of the lectionary texts for Easter Sunday. So this is Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 43. We'll come back and read a little bit more later. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Acts. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality But in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did both in Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of living of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So at this, at this point of the story of the early church, Christianity was still very much a Jewish 
religious movement. In the early chapters of Acts, there's this recurring emphasis on how the disciples interact with the Jewish authorities. The disciples are still very much focused on convincing fellow Jews that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. The mission to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, uh, had not begun in earnest at this point. And then in chapter 10, just before the verses that we read, a centurion in the the Roman army, a Roman centurion named Cornelius, receives this vision from an angel. And then immediately after that, Peter receives a revelation from God. And in this watershed moment of our salvation history, it becomes clear that, that old ideas about who's in and who's out are being replaced by God's inclusive vision. In his specific historical and social context, Jesus had been a Jewish rabbi with all Jewish disciples during his earthly ministries, during his earthly ministry, rather, who uh, in the beginning assumed that their job was to convert their own people to this new Jesus movement. But then a third of the way into the book of Acts, where we're reading today, they begin to figure out that God has has a bigger mission in mind. Now, Jesus had explicitly told them so more than once, but it still took a while, specifically 10 chapters into the book of Acts, for the Holy Spirit to reveal to the leaders of the church just how all-encompassing that mission would be. Jesus is Lord of all. Peter knows that. Nobody is an outsider then, (laughs) Peter realizes, because God shows no partiality, Peter comes to understand. And as we'll hear shortly, Cornelius' entire household, this Roman centurion and his entire household, will be welcomed into the family of God. Just as those earliest disciples were trying to make sense of what God had done in Christ, so theologians throughout the the centuries have added to the tradition. And their insights can help help us navigate uh, this particular watershed moment in our history when, when less than half of Americans consider themselves to be members of a local congregation. So throughout this series, we're going to be hearing from a, a wide variety of Christian thinkers. And we're beginning today with a man named Irenaeus. He was an early church leader who is often referred to as the first theologian in the church's history. He lived from uh, roughly 130 to roughly 200 AD, ultimately becoming the bishop of the church in Lyon, France. Irenaeus had heard the preaching of an early church leader named Polycarp, who himself had known the apostles, and that means that Irenaeus is, uh, is as close a connection as we have among all of the Christian theologians to that, to that New Testament era. He's just two generations removed. In fact, Irenaeus' ministry predated the finalization of the New Testament. He had texts that would ultimately become part of the New Testament, but they were not yet canonized as scripture, and he predates by more than a century the formal adoption of any historic creed. So in his writing, what we get is this really, really important window into the earliest Christian thinkers. 
A main focus of Irenaeus's work was arguing against a philosophy called Gnosticism that you may have heard of. Gnostics believed, among other things, that the material world was inherently bad and that the key to salvation was, um, was this special knowledge who were given to a chosen few. Irenaeus's most important work is something called uh, Against Heresies, where he laid out a theology to counter Gnosticism. Irenaeus taught that the created world is inherently good and that there are no chosen few with special insight. For Irenaeus, the, cor the cornerstone of Christian theology is the concept of the incarnation, which is to say our belief that in Christ God became a human being in order to reconcile human beings to God. We believe that God created humanity with free will, of course, and that free will uh, was given to us in order that we might choose and then grow in our relationship with God. In Christian theology, we believe that Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, it's the way the Gospel of John puts it, the capital W Word made flesh, has existed from the beginning, and that the Word had a particular earthly ministry, the record of which is our Gospels. Theologian Eusto Gonzalez describes Irenaeus's theology this way, quote, humankind is instructed by the two hands of God, the Word, capital W, Word, and the Holy Spirit. Led by these two hands, humans are to receive instruction and growth, always with a view to an increasingly close communion with God. The goal of this process is what Irenaeus calls divinization. God's purpose is to make us ever more like the divine. In, in the preface to Against Heresies, Irenaeus summarized his theology of the incarnation, talking about God. He says, in his immeasurable love, he became what we are to make us what he is. <laughs> I love that. He became what we are in order to make us what he is. Arguing against the Gnostic heresy, uh, building on the tradition of the apostles that had been passed to Polycarp and then on to him long before the Bible officially reached the final form that we have today, Irenaeus taught that the incarnation was for all, all of humanity because God chose no partiality, and because Jesus is Lord of all. All right, let's finish the text. We're going to finish that 10th chapter. This is verses 44 to 48. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. The story of the early church in Acts, as it stood at a, at a watershed moment in our 
salvation history is instructive for our own watershed moment, I think. The earliest disciples had to overcome what was for them really a monumental theological conundrum. Could Gentiles, non-Jewish people, really be faithful followers of Jesus? And if so, on what terms? This was no small question, right? Their entire worldview and salvation history up to that point had involved religious insiders and religious outsiders. To to include Gentiles without requiring them to follow the law meant rethinking centuries of religious tradition, which is no small task. Now, we know, of course, that the early church listened to the Holy Spirit and realized that God was doing something new. We know, of course, that they came to believe that the incarnation of God was for the whole world and not just for their particular religious group. We know that they, they passed on a theology articulated by Irenaeus in the next century in this beautifully succinct way. In his immeasurable love, he became what we are to make us what he is. In his commentary on Acts about this passage, United Methodist Bishop Will Willimon writes, faith, when it comes down to it, is our often breathless attempt to keep up with the redemptive activity of God. (laughs) To keep asking ourselves, what is God doing? Where on earth is God going now? It's good not to lose sight of the truth that Peter learned in Acts, that faith is an often breathless attempt to keep up with what God is doing now. For me, our passage this morning is an important reminder (laughs) that we religious people do not necessarily have it all figured out. It's a tough lesson, (laughs) especially for those of us who spend most of our lives studying religious things. In fact, one of the major themes of the New Testament is that the people who are most convinced that they're right are often the ones who are most surprised by what God is doing. First, it was the religious authorities refusing to believe that God was doing something new in Christ. Then it was the early church struggling with this question of what to do with the Gentiles. The story of Peter's humbling experience and and really crucial revelation challenges me to remember that God's vision is much grander than what I too often see. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, Peter says. It took him a while to get there, (laughs) but this This watershed moment in the life of the early church literally changed the course of human history forever. Today, I believe that we find ourselves at another watershed moment in the life of the church for the first time in our history. More than half of our fellow Americans have not yet found a church home because more than half of our fellow Americans no longer consider religion to be very important, and I still find that shocking. 
And I can't help but wonder if at least, at least part of the problem, at least part of what has chased people away or kept people from coming to begin with, is that the church has sometimes lost sight of what, what Peter teaches us in Acts. We, we sometimes have allowed our, our differences to obscure our common humanity. Now, we have plenty of differences, to be sure, right? Differences of politics and gender and gender identity and sexual orientation and race and nationality and socioeconomic circumstance. But all of our differences are are secondary to this theological truth that we are all children of God. One of the things that I love most about our congregation is that Christ United has long been a big tent church where everyone is welcome. We are very clear that God invites all of us into relationship, that we don't all have to agree on every point of theology or tradition, that our responsibility as disciples of Christ is hospitality, (laughs) inviting everyone to this place, and that God's responsibility is to take it from there. And that, it seems to me, is a message that that our world, our troubled and divided world, desperately needs to hear. So friends, as we wrestle with this question of why our faith matters, as we proclaim the good news of our Savior, let us be really clear on the starting point of our faith. Everyone is welcome. You, whoever you are, are welcome. Because as Peter learned and preached in those earliest days of the church, God shows no partiality. Our common humanity unites us. And Jesus Christ is the Lord of us all. Thanks be to God. Amen.